when we're writing policy, how can we write empathetic policy? Because I think we see in every country in the world, um, at every level, policy is written that is not written with empathy in mind that yeah. actually hurts so many people. So how do we be the generation and the people that are changing that? How do we continue with that momentum? And how do we, at the end of the day, again, make sure that people are safe and make sure that they have the opportunity to thrive and live the lives they deserve to live. Welcome everyone to this episode of Different Boat, Same Storm, a video podcast that's all about kindling empathy amidst this pandemic. Uh, today we're joined by an incredibly special guest. I know we interviewed a Harvard student in the past. This week we have another Harvard student, uh, a really good friend of mine, Tarina Kar Ahuja. Tarina, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm great. It's great to have you. And I'm really excited to be able to talk about uh, the pandemic in America, your experiences yeah. with it, but also all the amazing leadership work that you've done uh, and really the idea of empathy. I know both of us care a lot about empathy uh, and we'll get right into that. Uh, but, but to start, Tarina, how are you really? Uh, and how has this last year been? I mean, I know America is in an interesting spot with the pandemic, uh, but I mean, how have you been? Uh, what are you up to? Yeah, I first of all, I love the question, how are you really? Because I think, you know, in our time, this moment is so easy to just go by and say, I'm good, I'm okay. Um, and I think we can all serve to to do a little bit, do a little bit more with that. So to answer that question, I think today I'm good. It's been a long day, a lot of calls and meetings, um, but overall good. I was just outside getting some fresh air. It's like slightly raining, which I love. Um, and I think that that's kind of been my day. What about you? How are you really? Yeah, I'm great. Uh, just happy to be recording this podcast episode. I've been just doing a bunch of different things today. Also, the similar Zoom calls. I try to schedule them all on one day these days and just like be organized that way. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you get it. But uh, Trina, so you're, you're, you just finished your first year uh, at Harvard. Uh, yeah. how, what was that experience like during the pandemic? And uh, I guess I forgot to ask, like, uh, who are you, Trina? Like, uh, yeah. for, our, for our listeners who don't know you, you're involved in a lot of different uh, action projects. Uh, like we said, you care a lot about empathy. Uh, what has yeah. this past year been like? And uh, who are you? Yeah, well, to answer the question of who am I, um, I have a lot of different positions, a lot of different projects, which I know we'll get into. But I think the primary way that I classify myself is a Sikh Punjabi radical empath. And what I mean by radical empath is somebody that really centers empathy at the, the very center and core of all of the work I do, the actions I take and the interactions with people and relationships. And I remember that's actually how we started talking on Instagram um, through, I think, the other Harvard friend that you interviewed, Eleanor, who's a great friend of mine. Um, and I think that we connected on that theme of empathy. And I think you know, in our shared Sikh faith, one of the values that we hold extremely dear is a value called Vanjakana, um, which for those listening who might not know, basically means to share what you have. And for me growing up, of course, you mean that in the literal sense to share the material, um, to share physically what you have, but I've also always seen it as sharing your heart, sharing your soul, sharing your platform in advocacy of something greater. And so I think that is how I would classify who I am and what I care about. And, you know, throughout the pandemic, I think it's been quite a wild ride for everyone. I think all of us have been doing so much introspection and so much relationship building. So 
I am as extrovert as extrovert can get. But I think that this pandemic, all of us are kind of forced to take a little bit of time to do some introspection. Um, and it was hard. There was a lot of hard days, a lot of days that felt isolated, um, kind of felt like a tunnel where we weren't able to see the light at the end. But for me, whether it was finding new hobbies, like getting to go on hikes or cooking masala chicken for the first time for my family, um, and finally learning how to make like really good jaw from my dad, like yeah. <laughs> there's this sense of life was put on hold. So how do we figure out how to savor the life that we've been given? And kind of going back to Sikhi, I think that something that I held on to a lot and Obviously, it's easier said than done. It's always a journey, but is this ideal of Jardikala, which means eternal optimism, which I think is something that's so beautiful in learning how to take the pain and adversity and struggle. And how do we take that and say, you know what, we are going to keep on going. We are going to try to keep that eternal optimism, eternal contentment and do what we can every single day. Absolutely. No, that's beautifully said. I think the idea of Chardikala, especially as we're in layering crises, so being eternally optimistic, having these, having that internal light within you to look forward and be able to help people through that process. I think that's so important. And it's beautiful the way that you brought that all together. Like your experiences, your experience during this pandemic wasn't just one of uh, only introspection, rather it was about looking at other people in the world and trying to reach out to them, uh, show solidarity and uh, like I just mentioned, like layering crises is the word that I think we've all kind of become familiar with. There have been oh, yeah. multiple things going on beyond the pandemic. And uh, we look across the world, uh, racism and systemic racism has really been brought to the forefront. Uh, we look at the climate crisis that, I mean, is only beginning to scratch the surface of what public health efforts will really look like. Uh, and yeah. we look at the mental health health crises around that. Um, I mean, Katrina, as an individual, how do you navigate all those layering crises of our time? And again, as a young person, as a, as a student, as a Sikh, you have these different identities. How do they all play a role in that uh, navigation of this crazy world? That's a great question. And I'm going to turn it back on to you because I want to hear the answer from you as well. But I think that, you know, there are so many layers to each of us. And a metaphor that I always love hearing is thinking of each of us as a mosaic. We are all pictures and images and creations that are made off of every other person and thing we've interacted with, no matter how small or big that role has played in our life. And I think navigating it, especially when you're thinking about layers of grief, layers of suffering, layers of pain, it's hard. So something that I point to for myself is you know, when the farmers protests in India, Kisan protests um, were happening, uh, which is the largest protest in human history where small and marginal farmers were advocating for um, these three ordinances to be done away with because they did so much to put them to the side. Um, but it became a bigger movement about the rights of people, the rights of laborers, Absolutely. questions of caste. Um, and at the same time that that was happening in the States, you started to see an increase in anti-Sikh violence, um, anti-Asian violence, and of course, the continued layer of systemic racism. And I'm sure as a fellow empath, something that you can relate with is when things are happening around the world, it might not be directly affecting you but it takes a mental and emotional toll because we tend to feel it so deeply. Um, and I think that that is something that I've 
had to very much think about in navigating it because I think that there is very much such thing as activists burnout as you're trying to mobilize and trying to organize but not taking a second to understand the emotions that you have and prioritize you know your mental health so you can continue fighting for others so I think that something that so many of us are realizing within this time within these layers of suffering is that it is important to take care of yourself because if you don't take care of yourself you're not going to be able to continue these fights in solidarity with groups that have been marginalized. And that goes for everyone because there is a level of trauma you experience by seeing your community suffer, whether it is halfway across the world or in your backyard. So I think that that's something that is very much part of my navigation. How do we use that empathy to also be empathetic towards everybody around us, be empathetic towards ourselves mm. and using that that shared empathy to to kind of go forward and think about how are we going to continue fighting and i think something really important in understanding this this shared and collective fight for justice is that while these layers exist while there's so many different issues while there's so many different struggles they are connected and i i strongly believe that when we're thinking about justice international justice is something that we need to be think of, thinking about. So when we're looking at the protests in India um, and when we're looking at movements here, racial justice movements, movements for different um, immigrant groups, movements for so many yeah. different marginalized and oppressed groups, there are threads between them. And once we're able to amplify and support and stand in solidarity with each other is when we'll be able to move and shake the most. But I wanna hear your answer. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think you said it perfectly. Like, you need to make sure that you are not you're burning yourself out in that process of trying to reach out to other people and be empathetic. And empathy is such a big word that I, I feel like a lot of people are using nowadays to talk about how you ought to communicate with other people because it's not sympathy where you're kind of pitying other people. And it's not necessarily just compassion either, where you're um, kind of giving something to someone else, but it's about that true understanding of the roots of where someone's coming from and uh, empathy can be towards people that may be marginalized in society uh, but you can also offer empathy towards those that do have power and maybe the people that are doing the marginalizing and i think that's that, that's another aspect of it that we can get into like i love how deep into this conversation of activism we've already gotten into i do have a question though tarina based on what you just said um I mean, so often, especially as we're now on social media all day nowadays, we see different causes every single day from around the world. Uh, we see things in can like as an American, you might see things in Canada that probably won't affect your own life. And as a Canadian, I'll see things in America, but also see things in Asia and South Africa and Africa. Like uh, I said, South Africa and Africa. I'm in South America and Africa and like all these different places where you might actually not be able to relate to them. Uh, my question really is. Where does it stop? Or maybe a better question is where should it start? Like, how do you care about so many different causes at the same time and not get burnt out in that process, like you were saying? That is an incredible question um, and something that I grapple with quite a bit. And I think the way that I see it is that it's it's really about listening, right? It's about stories. So I was reading this really great book by um, Jamil Zaki. I can't remember the exact name, but it's a book that focuses on kindness and looks at kindness and very much breaks down empathy. And 
one example that he was offering is that when we hear about issues from around the world, there's a tendency where, you know, it's easy to brush over. And I think that that's being human because all of us are trying to, you know, grapple with what we're grappling with in our daily lives. And so it's hard. But when there was an image of somebody that was suffering, um, and he brought up this specific example, I can't remember what it is, but um, it was dealing with the Syrian refugee crisis, if I remember mm. correctly. Yeah. And when that image went viral, you saw massive streams of donations. You saw yeah. massive donations. And when you're thinking about the crisis in general, you might not get that support. But when you see the story of one person, one family, one individual, and they're suffering, that's when our levels of empathy are literally shown to tick up. So what I often think about is, of course, we're all human beings. We have to protect our, our souls too, as we're trying to get through each and every day. Um, but I think that where it should start is with stories and listening. Because when you're listening to people in the way that their, their lives are going, and it's hard on social media and in our current moment where we're seeing stories every single day from across the globe of such immense human suffering. And it's hard because we want to be able to do something, but you know, there's so much cognitive ability and bandwidth that we do have. But I think, again, it starts with stories. So listening Absolutely. to people for what they have to say, um, listening to their lived experiences um, and trying to plug in where we can. I think. Yeah. That is, at the end of the day, what we can do. So it doesn't take much to repost something on an Instagram story um, because even that can have such immense impact in trying to understand the struggle of another group, the struggle of something that's trying to happen. And I think that, you know, it's not like we have to be the speakers and nor should we be because the people that should be speaking and centered and amplified are the pupils that are experiencing it. At because the forefront. At the forefront. Exactly. Our job is to amplify them. So it's not like you have to be the one that is at the forefront, nor should you be, because we have to be cognizant of where our positionality is in certain struggles and what our job is as allies to mm. certain groups and to certain to certain people. And I think that's kind of what I think about, too. What can we do, whether it is just sharing an Instagram story, if that's all we can do in that moment or starting a Venmo donation campaign? Um, or, or whatever it may be. And yeah. with all of that, it's absolutely valid to take a break from social media. It's absolutely valid to take that time and space away because like we mentioned, these images are everywhere of people suffering and you know that is a type of trauma. So if you need to take time away from social media, take time away from the news, that is important too because you are worthy and valued and you matter. So mm. I think- there's there's a lot and I think yeah, there's really no easy answer absolutely and uh the photo you were talking about there I actually remember it was in 2015 yeah. uh it yeah. was it, it was it was the photo of a young boy washed up on a beach yeah that's it yeah and, and I remember that photo very distinctly because that actually uh and you probably don't know this it probably it, it, that that photo changed this uh the course of the Canadian election cycle in 2015 there was oh. a federal election in October. I think the photo came out a month or two before, and all this attention was brought uh, in Canada to this issue of refugees and also of immigration. And uh, yeah. it just goes to show that that one photo and that story being shared can have such a big ripple effect that you may not even know about at all. It's uh, yeah, no, it's very powerful. And 
again, I, I think the, the idea of storytelling is so powerful. Uh, and like you said, I think as, as humans, we're all storytelling beings. We connect yeah. with those stories. Uh, and I, again, at, like, at my nonprofit, Break the Divide, it's all about storytelling to kindle empathy. Uh, and, and I guess this is a great segue to talk about your work in building yeah. empathy. Uh, so, Tarina, what I know about you is that you, you run an organization called the Greater Good Initiative that uh, centers empathy in policymaking. Uh, how did yeah. this organization come to be and what is it about? Again, we've talked a lot about empathy. What is it about empathy that made you want to start this project? Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, this whole podcast, thinking about the storm of the pandemic that we're all facing, that's actually the launching pad for the Greater Good Initiative. So um, me and my friend Adam, who's the co-founder of the organization, back last March, we're kind of on a FaceTime call. We were just talking, you know, as friends do. Somehow it ended up being 3 a.m. And like <laughs> the the people that we are, somehow the conversation descended into politics. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we started talking about the youth response to COVID-19 because we were seeing incredible mm. young people from across the country making masks, seeing them doing collections, delivering groceries to our elders. Um, and we were thinking about, you know, in the youth space in general, we see incredible organizers and mobilizers, but are we seeing young people in policy? Are we seeing ourselves represented as not only the people that are the constituents, but the writers, the decision makers? And I think that our society has a tendency to kind of pat young people on the back and say, you are the leader of tomorrow. But the truth is we are the leaders of today. And I think we've proven that time and time again. And so in starting the organization, we were thinking about how do we represent the lived experiences and perspectives and thoughts and ideas of a vast vi variety and, you know, a vast spectrum of people, young people. Um, and that's how the organization was born, originally doing uh, policy in response to COVID-19 and three sectors of public health, economy, uh, and education, which were the three big centers of COVID policy that we were seeing at the time. Um, and then a year later, we're doing policy in vastly different areas, not just COVID-19, in five sectors, the three I mentioned, plus civil rights and environment. We have um, over 130 people from across the U.S. and even some internationally, actually, um, doing policy at the local, state, and federal level in the states. Um, and where empathy comes in, it for me, is honestly the core and genesis of who we are as an organization. Mm. Because when we think about policy, one of my favorite representatives here in the states represents in Massachusetts. Her name is Representative Ayanna Presley. Uh, one of her taglines is thinking about policy as a love language. And I've always loved that because when you look at policy as a way to take action and show communities that you care about them and their struggle, that is to me the most immense act of radical empathy because you're saying, you know, this is a problem and experience you're living with. I'm not going to pretend to know as somebody who hasn't experienced that what's best for you, I'm going to center you and amplify what it is you need through policy that can give us systemic and institutional change. Mm. Um, so that's kind of where it all comes into it for me and thinking about when we're writing policy, how can we write empathetic policy? Because I think we see in every country in the world um, at every level, 
policy is written that is not written with empathy in mind that yeah. actually hurts so many people. So how do we be the generation and the people that are changing that? How do we continue with that momentum? And how do we, at the end of the day, again, make sure that people are safe make sure that they have the opportunity to thrive and live the lives they deserve to live? Totally. So it's not about imposing your beliefs on other people and saying that you know best, you know how to solve their problems, but it's about that active process of listening, of learning, and then building policy based on that. I think that's so powerful and so important. Uh, it's amazing. And, and, and so, Tarita, a few times here now, we've talked about listening and the importance of listening to create change. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, though, we do see that with some issues, uh, it feels like we can't afford to take time to listen. It feels like we need radical, immediate action now. And I actually asked uh, last year when I was interviewing our, our mutual friend, Eleanor, Yeah. I, I built up the, to the conversation and I kind of realized like, this is a question that I've struggled with for a while. How do you balance that listening uh, and that slow progress of change when it comes to an issue like um, climate action? You know, we, we may need to listen to people and we may need to hear the other side, but we also need immediate action now in order to prevent the worst effects. So what do you think about that? You know, I don't think they're mutually exclusive because I think that when we think about listening, I see listening as, you know, listening to the people that are most affected by issues. And a lot of the times, those are the people that are leading the change and leading the action. And our job is figuring out how do we amplify that? So in thinking about climate change, a lot of what I think about is environmental racism and thinking about how folks of color and low income folks are the ones that are going to be most impacted by climate change. And we're already seeing it in so, so much of the world. And something based off of that is there are so many mobilizers and organizers and groups that are focusing on these issues that have been doing this work for decades before climate change was a buzzword. And so I think that that radical, active, big change needs to happen. It needs to happen now. And I think that listening comes in acting too, because I think that when we're listening, we're listening to the people that are doing the moving and shaking, if that makes any sense. Yeah. When we're listening to them. We're figuring out, okay, you have been doing this work for so long. How can we support? How can we follow your lead? How can we amplify? Whether it's being another body at a protest, or whether it's writing a policy that supports something people have been advocating for, um, or posting something on social media, or doing a fundraising campaign. Um, but I don't think that necessarily that that process of listening has to be slow because that process of building movements has already been happening. And in that movement building, listening is inherent. Um, and it's listening for all of us to think about where do we plug in to that movement. So I think that they're honestly hand in hand and thinking about listening and acting and where those two come together. It's funny, Eleanor, when we talked last year, and everyone can check out that episode too. I think it was episode yeah. five of season one. Uh, oh, Eleanor actually had a very similar response saying that they're not mutually exclusive. And uh, I, I, I guess, yeah, they're not mutually exclusive in the way that you can listen and you can act and you actually need to listen in order to act. And I, I think a, a means of creating change of the past is just to act without really listening. But by centering empathy around all of it, you are yeah. focusing on that listening in order to act. I, I think that's amazing. Yeah. What about you? I'd love to hear your thoughts. 
Oh, uh, back at me. No, I love that. I, I mean, yeah. honestly, Trina, I feel the same way that uh, you need to listen in order to act. One thing, I, and I think to build on what I was saying earlier, like the struggle that I have at times is that when it comes to climate change uh, and listening to people, uh, you know, absolutely, we need to listen to those that are disproportionately impacted. And those are, are often people of color, um, indigenous peoples, those who are connected to the land, uh, women and children globally, too. Like those are the people that are experiencing the worst effects of climate change and will continue to. Uh, my question is, my, my question, the root of my question really stems from listening to people that we also don't agree with. So people who may not believe climate change is a threat or people who may, like, and, and again, there's often some valid reasons or that we can understand where these reasons are coming from, whether it's people's employment is tied to an industry that climate action actually threatens. And governments haven't put in enough infrastructure or effort into transitioning these people away from their jobs. Or uh, there's often bad faith actors that don't want climate action to happen. Uh, I guess to build on that, uh, my, qu- uh, my view is that we need to listen to those that actually have genuine concerns. And I think we've seen that um, in the case of vaccine hesitancy. Telling people and yelling at them isn't the way to get them to actually get vaccinated. Whereas with these bad faith actors, um, that's where things need to change. I mean, uh, bringing this new aspect of bad faith actors and people who you disagree with into this equation, uh, what are your thoughts on the means of creating change? Yeah. So this is another thing that I've grappled with quite a bit. bit. And I think that where it breaks down for me is two places, the question of we and the question of why. So what I mean by the question of we is we talk about, you know, we, we use the term we, do we need to be listening um, and how do we go about it? But I think that when we're thinking about change making, change making is powerful when we have different avenues. So I think that there are people, there are activists and mobilizers who are focusing solely on getting that radical, imaginative, big change, institutional, systemic change happening. And that's their focus. They're not necessarily interested in talking to the other side who might be doing a lot to undermine really important movements. But then you also have people who are putting in that time to talk to people who might be hesitant. And I think that both can exist at the same time. Two truths can exist at the same time. So I think that that's important to break down. And I think, you know, some of us might be doing both um, and some of us might be focusing on one area. They're not wrong. They're not invalid, but we need both to keep each other accountable, if that makes any sense. Because we can't risk the big change, but we also, there, there are, there's a difference between, you know, the people who, have deep pockets and are trying to keep it that way, the bad faith actors and the people who might be, you know, living in areas where it is their livelihood. There's a difference between that too. And so thinking about how do we break that down? How do we actually extend a hand and say, you know what, in this plan, we're making sure you have employment, making sure that your job is protected. And even if that is true in the policy, it hasn't been actively manifested in the way we're doing outreach to people, which is also a problem. So I think that making sure people understand that, you know, their concerns are being heard and acted upon, that nobody wants them to be out of a job in that specific scenario. And thinking about how are we framing this? How are we bringing people in on it? Um, And I think something really important to think about is a lot of times when people feel like somebody might be questioning their right to existence. I think you know, those individuals have no obligation to have to entertain that because it's their life and livelihood. But, you know, 
having the conversation of what leads me into the why. Why does somebody believe what they believe? Um, and again, nobody who's being victimized and being, you know, the object of, of cruelty like this has any obligation to do this. But I think that I, if, if you are somebody that might be willing to, to have that conversation thinking about why does somebody believe what they believe? Did they grow up in an echo chamber that caused them to believe this in a certain way? Um, and then again, you have parts of that we, parts of those people focusing on the why. How do we break down that why? How are we able to break down ignorance that might exist? How do we take it into something different? And so I guess the culmination of all of this is another quote that I'd heard um, that basically goes something along the lines of being kind with people, um, but radically imaginative with institutions. Um, so being, being ruthless in your actions to create institutional change, but being kind with people, if that makes any sense. I love that. That makes so much sense. And I, I, yeah. I, I know I really just love it all around. And as an individual, your place is to figure out where do you fit? Do you care about, or not even do you care, it's about, are you are you best or are you best fit for creating that radical change at an institutional level to improve our systems for everyone? Uh, or do you want to engage in that process of like reaching out and extending that, extending that olive branch to the other side, if you, if you put it that way? I, I love that so much. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And I think that like, at the end of the day, we do all have a responsibility when thinking about these big issues like climate change, racial justice, um, immigration to to speak up and do our part and to take action for this international justice. Um, but thinking about within that, what's our place? How do we see ourselves in that mosaic of we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I love that again. And like that'll probably be like a, a clip in this in this entire episode that we'll share. Like, how do we how do we care about all of us together? And uh, I think that's honestly a very important question. And in reflecting on uh, America's experience over the pandemic over the past year, how do we take care of one another? Uh, so, Tarina, you've been at, at you've actually been in university this entire time at Harvard. Uh, like, I've been doing online school this entire time, so I haven't actually had that experience of being on campus, being with people. What has that been like during a pandemic? And I mean, has that changed the way that you view America, your world, society? Like, I'm just genuinely curious. What has it been like? Honestly, like taking away the world society. Yeah. I've been thinking about like, honestly, just seeing the way I see people, because yeah. I think that going to school within a pandemic, all of our classes were virtual, but we got to be in the same space. And obviously that's how I met Eleanor and her and I became roommates in our apartment in the spring. Um, we became super close. Um, but I think the way I see people is, you know, a culmination of, of desires and of passions, because I think all of us at the end of the day, we deserve to be happy. We deserve to know that we're worthy and valued and safe. And also to be able to know that we're doing something that's meaningful to us. And so I think that for college students around the world, this has been probably one of the hardest, if not the hardest times of our lives and thinking about, you know, balancing school, because there was a point in the pandemic where, you know, last when it was first starting early pandemic, where there was a lot of understanding around like, oh, assignments, et cetera, et cetera. But as we got to a certain point, you know, we were expected to do all of the same things that we had to do in a non-normal year, just virtually. And then experiencing such intense Zoom fatigue of being 
on a computer from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. Like that's not normal, but that's <laughs> something that all of us had to do. And yeah. at the same time, struggling with international layers of grief um, in our own communities and other communities. At the same time, having to continue think about our academic career, our actual career, where do we go from here? At the same time, balancing extracurriculars um, and at the same time coming up with relationships and trying to be a college student and understanding like creating friendships and having meaningful relationships with people. So I think that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that oftentimes thinking about like specifically people that are our age, our generation, what we've had to go through, it's important to acknowledge that. It's important to acknowledge that, you know, this is the time where people say is the coming of age time. Um, and so much of it we did lose. And, and that is a reality that's true for some of us. And at a certain point, we do have to, to sit in that because I think that when it was happening at the beginning of the pandemic for me and a lot of my peers losing graduation and then losing a normal start to college, you kind of have to just keep going, keep chugging along. So like taking a second to sit in that grief of something that, that we lost. Um, and of course there were so many things that were gained um, in the process and, you know, life and our world today is, is a culmination of, of what has happened in the last year, but you're allowed to allow yourself that space and those emotions. And so that's all to say that the way I see people now is that you just have to be so understanding of what somebody might be going through. And I think we, we hear it as a hallmark um, greeting card tagline, but thinking about be kind because you never know what somebody is going through. But I think that this has amplified that to another level and thinking about we have to be intentional with how we reach out to people. And we also have to be intentional about how we care for people. We also have to be intentional about how we care for ourselves. Um, so all of that to culminate into this idea of just like seeing people as people, as human beings, and that we have to give each other a little bit of grace. Yeah. And uh, over the past year at college, uh, in the pandemic, you've seen that it's more than just like, oh, people have assignments. It's also that emotional toll. It's that uh, physical toll. It's like all of it together. And that adds up. And yeah. the point you're making is like, you don't know, you don't know what someone is going through behind, like behind the curtain in front of them. That's so true. And I, it, it's such an important reminder too. Yeah, and it's something that you, I know that you at Break the Divide and just all of the work that you do, as well as your brother, do so much advocacy for mental health. And I think that that's another thing that we've seen in the pandemic that is just beyond important to understand that, you know, every single person deserves to be able to check up on their own mental health and understand sure. that you might need a break and that's okay. You might, you might need to be able to to confide in your friends and ask for when you need help. And I think more and more people within this time have been starting to, to understand and feel all of that. Absolutely. I, no, I love talking and I love reflecting on this. And uh, now, now it's right, you're at this, you're at this point in, uh, in your life. And I guess uh, America as a whole is at this point where you're kind of transitioning out of this pandemic phase. So uh, for context, yeah. I'm here at home. Um, I've gotten my first dose of my vaccine. Uh, but my, yeah. and I got it, I think a month and a half ago, but my second dose yeah. was initially scheduled for four months after. Ah! <laughs> I can't believe that. 
<laughs> and so every oh. everyone in Canada actually their second doses were scheduled for four months after the first dose. Oh my God. Uh, just That's to spread good. it out. Yeah, so I think around 70% of the population now is their first dose, but I mean, masks are still mandatory everywhere. Uh, you, some, some provinces like Ontario, you still can't go inside restaurants. Um, I mean, that's very different from the photos and videos I've seen about like uh, American football games and hockey games where there's thousands of people together. Uh, what is it like for you on an individual basis? Like, what do you see? I think that, you know, kind of what you're describing, it's like mask mandates are getting lifted and more gatherings are starting to happen because you know more and more people are fully vaccinated and so you're starting to see life go back to normal but I think for me it's really interesting to think about you know as life is going back to normal looking at what's happening in India and look at looking at what's happening in South Asia um, and how internationally COVID numbers are getting are really bad in some areas and we're trying to figure out the vaccine distribution internationally and I understand that I and all of those right now that have been completely vaccinated sit at a place of being privileged to be able to, you know, have that that element of safety for us and our family. Um, but I think that, you know, that's something that I've been seeing in terms of things starting to open up, things starting to go back to normal. And I have a really good friend who actually lives in Ontario right now and is doing some work there. Um, and every time I'm talking to him, he's like, oh my God, we can't even go into restaurants. We can't even go out like pretty strict quarantine here. And that was the same time when, you know, I was starting to get my vaccine um, and things were starting to go back to normal. So I think that it's just this level of like, we're seeing the world at a perspective where all of us are kind of at different places in different countries. Um, and so I think that, yeah, it's been really interesting to see how that's unfolding and we'll get the numbers soon because of course the vaccine is never 100%, um, but it's so important for all of us to get to protect ourselves and protect each other, um, but making sure that we're still being cognizant of there are so many people who still haven't gotten the vaccine. So doing our best and doing our part to still being being cognitive and empathetic towards the people in our own communities that might not have been able to get the vaccine due to, to health reasons or being yeah. immunocompromised. And so how do we, how do we stay cognizant of that? Yeah, definitely. No, I, I, I remember telling another American friend about the four month delay between my vaccines and their reaction was like yeah. very similar. And again, though, I, I think like if I put it into context, like I'm so grateful that I've just gotten my first dose too, like you were saying, because around the world, most people have not gotten a vaccine. And yeah. so recognizing that privilege, I think, allow, grounds you uh, in a certain reality of like what it, what's actually going on in the world. And uh, yeah. as we begin to wrap up here, Tarina, like, I mean, this has been such a great conversation about so many different things. Uh, as we move forward now beyond the pandemic, uh, as, as the world will very soon, and hopefully within the next year or so, or next six months, get out of the state of crisis and pandemic, uh, what do you think we need to focus on moving forward um, as we address other crises like the climate crisis that we've talked about, like these mental health challenges that we all face? And uh, how has your life, like your experiences with uh, the Greater Good Initiative and uh, another organization that you founded that we didn't have a chance to talk about, Young Casa Girls, uh, yeah. how does how does that all come together? And like, I know that's a big question. I've been known to ask questions that like I need my guests to answer in like a double space, yeah. 50, 500 words. Uh, like, what do you think we need to do moving forward? 
Great question. Yeah. And we didn't get to talk much about Young Colossal Girls, but I co-founded that back in 2012 um, with a couple of good friends. And that's just focused on getting young women um, involved in SEVA or selfless service and advocacy. But to answer that, that million dollar question, my <laughs> gosh, um, I think that what we need to focus on moving forward is each other. And I think what I mean by that is understanding that everybody has a story doing what we can to understand what that story is and you know we did all this talking about empathy as i knew we would because it's at the forefront of both of our personalities but i think that it's a matter of understanding that the buck doesn't stop at just understanding it stops at action and so we're all doing what we can to leave a legacy we're all doing what we can to make this world better for future generations and for when we are no longer here anymore um and i think that all of that again comes down to this basic level of connection because if we can understand why somebody feels the way they're feeling we can start feeling inspired and ignited to take more action to do what we can to continue continue caring for each other so i think it's this level of human connection, seeing, seeing each other's as people, because at the end of the day, I think that, you know, it might be idealistic, but with every bone in my body, I really do feel that we have more goodness than evil in this world. And I think each human being has more goodness than evil in them. And I think it's just a matter of, of bringing out that goodness, seeing that goodness, acting on that goodness, um, and just, chugging along and doing whatever it is that you can to find yourself in your own mosaic and how your mosaic connects to those of others. Yeah, that beautifully said again. Uh, we build up these layers of bricks around ourselves and other people. And uh, a lot of the work now is to destroy those divisions, to break those divides. Uh, break the divide. For the, wait, here, wait, 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 wait. Breaking the divides for the greater good. Oh my God, that's... Again, we need, we're going to collaborate. Everyone will see that really soon. Oh, yeah. Some, sure. Sometime soon. No, we need to break those divides for the greater good. I love that. Like, maybe that's the title of this episode. Uh, and, and by doing so, we become more connected. And uh, I guess to really end here, Trina, what do you think that does for the individual? Because, again, we've talked a lot about the collective good and how we all feel as a people. If I'm someone here who is not doing so well and I don't care about like action and I don't care about empathy because my life's so busy and so stressful that I don't have the capacity to, what good does it do for me to be empathetic, to understand other people and take action? That seems like a lot of work. You know what? You're right. But I think that at the end of the day, when we look at what empathy is and what connection is, it's kind of thinking about how do we be there for our neighbors? How do we be there for our fellow human beings? And what does that do for the individual? I mean, there are like, like hard data driven studies that say that when we are, you know, doing stuff to, to be there for other people in our life and to be in other communities, um, it does actually improve our actual health and emotional well-being. Um, fun fact, but I think that another thing that it does for the individual um, is kind of I think of it as, as filling, filling our cups, right? So we have to be cognizant of understanding what we already have to give. And, you know, if we're in the process of surviving, of trying to support your family, of trying um, to keep going, it is completely valid to be focusing on that. Yeah. Um, but I think understanding what 
what in our cup do we have to give and how can we understand that building this empathy from an institutional standpoint is actually beneficial to all of us because it is the collective good but it's also you know understanding that we're building something better for for us and for our loved ones and for the people that come after us but it's also this idea of just at the end of the day being there for our fellow human beings because yeah. it's easy to be so detached from people that might be across the world and again we talked about that so much it, it is hard um but at the end of the day we we are all we are all human and coming together in whatever way you can in whatever way that change looks for you it can be small it can be big it can be whatever whatever feeds your soul um but yeah, yeah but i I want to flip that on you as well, though, to end the podcast. What, what's your thought? What does it do for the individual? Uh, to, to add to what you said, we're all connected. Uh, we're all connected. And I think even at a spiritual level, that feeling of giving back leaves you feeling content, uh, feeling good for yourself. And I, I, like you said, I, I think that like fills your cup, which and that fills your soul. Uh, and I think that's just a beautiful way to end this podcast. Uh, Trina, thank you so much for this conversation. We've talked about everything from your amazing work through your organizations, the ways that you're building your empathy. Uh, thank you. Yes. And the ways that uh, together, I think we're building a more inclusive society, one that cares for the marginalized and one that puts their voices at the forefront of decision making. Uh, we've also talked a lot about the state of the world. Like, how do we care about other people? How do we engage in activism? How do we become better people in that process? And uh, as always, an amazing discussion about the pandemic and what that's been like, the differences around the world, how I'm waiting maybe another two or three months for my vaccine. Uh, and and I, it's just been such a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. This has been just so beautiful, a beautiful connecting of souls. Wonderful. So this has been our episode of Different Boat, Same Storm. We'll be back at another time, same time, different guests, different boat, same storm. Mm -hmm.